Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. South Carolinians are waiting out Hurricane Ian, which made landfall near Georgetown today with top winds of 85 miles per hour. South Carolina Public Radio Scott Morgan is south of Charlotte. The governor told everybody to stay home today, pretty much for the most part, and people listened. Uh, and this is South Carolina. We don't seem to be that worried about Category 1 hurricanes because, unfortunately, we see a lot of storms like this. So I think people are just kind of taking it in stride. I don't see any really special preparations. So far, uh, no fatalities have been reported in the state, and I haven't heard of any injuries yet in the state. So things, knock on wood, seem to be moving along pretty well. Multiple deaths have been reported, though, in Florida, where Hurricane Ian made landfall two days ago. Thousands of nursing home and assisted living residents there evacuated due to Ian. NPR's Laura Benchoff reports that while many made it out before the storm, rising floodwaters forced some emergency rescues. More than 40 nursing homes moved their residents before Hurricane Ian hit Wednesday afternoon, mostly from Florida's southwestern coast. Kristen Knapp of the Florida Healthcare Association says at least five more facilities were forced to evacuate during and after the storm, including some outside the evacuation zone. The water rose so quickly because they took on so much rain that they had to, they had to leave. NPR also reached some nursing homes in southwest Florida that rode out the storm and are currently running on generator power. Following Hurricane Irma five years ago, Florida passed a law that all assisted living and nursing homes must have backup power to keep residents safe. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. Now we've been following a relief group that's just arrived from Missouri. Spokesperson Ethan Forehead says multiple tractor trailers dispatched by the faith-based Convoy of Hope have arrived in hard-hit Fort Myers carrying water, food, and other emergency supplies. We can send out smaller trucks, box trucks, into more hard-hit areas and go to neighborhoods, go to people, and drop off the supply that way. Distribution begins in full force tomorrow. Both chambers of Congress have now signed off on an interim funding bill to keep federal agencies operating through mid-December. Here's NPR's Barbara Sprunt. Congress averted a government shutdown by passing this continuing resolution with 11 hours to spare. Just 10 House Republicans joined all House Democrats in voting for the measure. The bill will extend funding at current levels through December 16th, giving both the House and Senate extra time to hammer out details for a broader budget deal. The package also includes $2.5 billion to aid communities devastated by natural disasters, a billion dollars in funding a low-income home heating program, and $12 billion in aid for Ukraine. That's NPR's Barbara Sprunt reporting. The Dow closed down nearly 500 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Fare gates are going up at North Station commuter rail platforms. Starting tomorrow, passengers will have to tap passes or scan digital tickets before they board. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftek says the commuter rail has long been losing significant revenue because conductors sometimes don't have time to check tickets on the trains. Word just in the Patriots quarterback Mac Jones will not play Sunday against the Packers in Green Bay. The team has listed him as out on this afternoon's injury report. He did appear at practice today and threw passes. Jones sustained an ankle injury last week. And the health of an endangered North Atlantic right whale known as Snow Cone is declining. The whale was first spotted over a week ago, tangled in fishing gear south of Nantucket. A more recent sighting found her to be pale and moving slowly. Snow Cone is one of fewer than 100 breeding females remaining on the planet.
59 degrees in the Boston area. Clouds are moving into night temperatures in the 50s. Lots of clouds over the weekend. Tomorrow and Sunday both could have a shower tomorrow afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.05. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at Avast.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins with Deborah Becker. Now, here's the latest. We have three hours to go in our fall fund drive. We want to share the most recent update on our progress. Thanks to everybody who has given so far. We are now down to the last $94,000. We need that to meet our fundraising goal. And to those of you who have helped us get to this point, we cannot thank you enough. Uh, If you have not given yet, and you can, we need to make that remaining $94,000 before uh, the fundraiser can end successfully. We're going to end it at 7 o'clock tonight anyway, but we really want to make the last amount. What part of that can you give? Please give it right now. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Hi, Deborah. Hello there, Lisa. Hello, everyone. $94,000 is a lot of money. It's a lot of money to raise in the next three hours, but we know that you can do this for us. You can help us reach this fundraising goal in the next few hours. This is it, the final stretch of our fall fundraiser. And meeting that goal just means that we will have the resources we need to bring you the news that you count on. That's all we're asking you to do right now is make a pledge and help us reach that fundraising goal so we will be able to meet our budget. The number again is 800-909-9287. The website's WBUR.org. And you know, we've heard from a lot of you. Lisa, you said thanks to everyone who has given so far. And really, so many people have given, so thank you. But we're asking you to do it if you haven't had a chance yet. And we've heard from so many people. Listeners have commented um, about giving and why they decided to give. At one point, someone said, when I heard you say you were down from your goal, I decided I had to do something and step it up. I wasn't going to send a check. I was going to donate right now because I want independent journalism to stay strong. If you agree, do it now. This is a fundraising model that relies on you because we have other sources of income that don't come close to what we get from our listeners. And we really appreciate all sources of income, but we really like being beholden to you, our listeners, not to commercial interests, not to government interests. So we're asking you to do your part. As Deborah said, it comes right back out in the news that you get on WBUR 24-7. Here's the number again as we go to All Things Considered, 1-800-909-9287 or pledge online at WBUR.org. Thanks. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. On Florida's Gulf Coast, people are trying to pick up the lives that they put on hold when Hurricane Ian struck earlier this week. A few businesses have reopened, and that means long lines at gas stations, supermarkets, and the occasional food truck. In the hardest hit areas, meaning Fort Myers and surrounding communities, there's still no power or water and wide uncertainty about when it may be back. NPR's Greg Allen has been out talking to people there and joins us now. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so there's no power or water, but some businesses are reopening. How are they doing that? Well, with generators mostly, you know, there's been an emphasis in Florida on having gas stations and supermarkets have emergency generators. But all those generators require gas. 
Chad Varney and his brother Brandon waited in line in Northport in Charlotte County for almost two hours today to get gas. Chad says their house flooded in the storm surge. So we had two canals going all around us so we could watch the water coming in. Uh, as soon as I went over the neighbor's yard, we knew it was coming to the street next. And uh, as soon as they all met, uh, obviously we just watched the water keep on rising. We watched it come up into our pool, up in our lanai, up in our garage. We have about two feet of standing water in our garage about a foot and a half all around our house inside. Well, how much have the floodwaters subsided in the areas where you are? Well, in a lot of areas we visited, the storm surge quickly went down. But Brandon Varney, uh, Chad's brother, says the water has gone down at his house, but in other areas, it's still rising. Back in Northport, it's going to be rising probably for the next week or so. This is what they're saying. Power, they're saying for three months could be out out there. Many roads are still flooded and closed in Northport, and some residents are using boats or kayaks to get in and out of their homes. And Greg, I understand that you've also been to Cape Coral, which which also took a huge hit during this storm. How are people doing there? Well, you know, this is an area that was pummeled by 140 mile per hour winds for hours, and also it got that powerful storm surge. We talked to Karen Colley, who has a home and a business here. She says both were flooded when the surge came in on Monday. We came to our office to get whatever we could salvage because the roof's just, everything's just gonna come down. Our house is okay other than the water that came in and it smells like sewage, raw sewage. Driving through Cape Coral today, we saw a lot of damage to roofs, carports, awnings. We saw aluminum siding wrapped around palm trees. There are a lot of trees down, but in the section we saw, concrete construction houses held up remarkably well despite those high winds and the flooding. I'm curious, Greg, are you seeing signs that some people are beginning the long recovery process besides those businesses you talked about? Right. Of course, there's those long lines. And near Cape Coral's downtown, Matt Harrison had three smokers going today and was selling barbecue from his food truck. Today, we just ran out of pulled pork. I got more cooking right now, so we'll have more again tonight. We've got brisket and ribs right now. He stocked up on ribs and brisket before the storm. The one thing he didn't have today, though, was bread. His home and businesses were flooded, and he thinks recovery is going to be a long process. It took us 19 days with Irma. This is 100 times worse. It's, it's I can't even say, months. Wouldn't surprise me. Well, we also began to get word today of fatalities during the storm. What do we know so far on that front? Well, Florida officials said they need to wait for medical examiners to rule before they can confirm which deaths are really storm-related. So right now, although there's just one confirmed storm-related death, we know of at least 20 others that are awaiting confirmation. And that number is only likely to grow. Right. That is NPR's Greg Allen in Fort Myers, Florida. Thank you so much, Greg. Welcome. After Hurricane Ian ravaged Florida, its remnants spiraled out into the Atlantic Ocean and then regained hurricane strength. Earlier this afternoon, Ian made landfall in South Carolina. It may have landed as a less powerful Category 1 storm, but National Hurricane Center officials still warned of life-threatening storm surge along the coast, as well as severe flooding throughout the Carolinas and, of course, strong winds. Amanda Bryan lives in the coastal city of Myrtle Beach. That's a little over 30 miles north of where the center of the storm passed. Amanda, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for talking to us today. Yes, thank you. Amanda, what did you see and hear as the worst came through this afternoon? The worst came through around an hour ago. We're actually in the middle of getting the backside of the storm now. So mm. our our power is kind of flickering on and off as we speak. And the winds have definitely picked up. Um, we rode down to the beach earlier where we frequent on the golf cart and the dunes are completely covered. 
The dunes are completely covered, you said, and you, I know you said your power is flickering. How's everything else holding up? Your building, your other utilities. Everything seems to be going just fine. Um, we did have a tree come down in the backyard, and um, unfortunately, our neighbor's chicken coop, we had to rescue her chickens. But um, other than that, just a lot of a lot of flying debris, um, just blocks from us. The roads are impassable because of the storm surge. Um, it's come over the roads now, so they're closing the streets. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that you and other people there saw some of what happened in Florida. How were you preparing mm-hmm. for the storm? Um, I've actually been a resident here for all of my life. So I've been through some minor and some major hurricanes. Um, just making sure that we have enough water in case we do lose power, of course, you know, for the grill, because that's always a good option. We do have a generator and just making sure that we're kind of clear in the path for, you know, the limbs that are falling, if we can get outside to get them to get them down. So they're not hanging on the power line or creating other, you know, dangerous situations. Your line's dipping it out in a little bit, and we'll just remind people that you oh. said you're getting the back half of that storm right now. Amanda, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you've lived in South Carolina your whole life. How does this mm-hmm. compare to other storms that you've been through? Um, well, I was a child when Hugo came through, but I remember being out of power for at least two weeks, so that was just a crazy situation. Um mm. But uh, Matthew, I actually lived in Conway during Matthew, and the flooding there was just, it was just, it was really bad um we didn't you know we still haven't recovered fully from that but um here at the beach this is um in the matter of wind it's it's been pretty severe a lot more than i expected it's hard to hear you say that even as you're weathering the back half of this storm now of hurricane ian your community still hasn't recovered from a storm that happened before i'd like to ask you before we let you go how Mm -hmm. are you feeling right now Um, I am feeling pretty good right now. Like I said, we're on the back end of it. So I think a lot of the the dangerous winds have already come through. But um, it's definitely, you know, an anxious feeling to to be at the hands of Mother Nature and not know what's going to happen. Yeah, I have to imagine that is a lot of anxiety. I hope you and your family are weathering it well and that you stay safe. We have been talking to Amanda Bryan, who we reached in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Amanda, thank you and stay safe. Thank you so much. If it seems like your expenses are outgrowing your paycheck, you are not alone. A new report from the Commerce Department today shows that Americans' incomes rose last month, but their spending grew even faster. And that's not because people are buying so much more. A lot of the extra spending is just to keep up with inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with details of today's report. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what does this report tell us about what's happening with inflation? Well, of course, we knew already that inflation is high. We saw that with the consumer price index that came out earlier in the month. This Commerce Department inflation yardstick, however, is the one that the Federal Reserve watches most closely. And unfortunately, it shows price hikes are stubborn and they are spreading. If you strip out gasoline and food prices, which tend to bounce around a lot, inflation was actually worse in August than it was in July. And economist Shannon Seary of Wells Fargo notes, we're starting to see price hikes in things like rent, which tend to be pretty sticky. It really emphasizes that inflation is not letting up anytime soon. When we cut through the noise of volatile month-to-month changes, we are seeing some of those major components like housing and the services side really still gaining momentum. 
And that means the Federal Reserve is likely to keep raising interest rates, which means it's going to be more expensive to get a car loan or a home mortgage or just to carry a balance on your credit card. Yeah. Well, how are people responding to these high prices? So far, they are still spending at a pretty good clip. Personal spending in August rose four-tenths of a percent from the month before. That is more than enough to keep pace with these rising prices. Now, people are shifting a bit what they're spending money on. Uh, They're spending less on stuff and more on services like transportation and health care. That has taken some of the price pressure off of stuff, which is something economists have been expecting for a while. Unfortunately, though, now we're seeing higher prices for services, especially things like rent and electricity. So it's not offering a lot of relief in the overall inflation picture. Well, well, then how are people paying for this additional spending? Well, some of it is coming from bigger paychecks. You know, wages were up three-tenths of a percent last month. So we had more people working. They're making more money. That helps. But as we said, spending rose even faster. And Siri says that means some people are now tapping into those savings they socked away earlier in the pandemic. You're seeing consumers really drawing down savings and and saving less of their monthly income in order to counteract inflation today. You can do that for a while, but not indefinitely. Uh, We know that on the whole, bank balances are higher now than they were before the pandemic, so a lot of people do have something of a financial cushion. But some people, especially lower-income families, have started to exhaust their savings. And when that happens, people have to scale back their spending. If that happens to enough people, we could see a real economic slowdown. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR checking business news so much for September on Wall Street. The Dow lost 500 points, about one and three quarters percent, to close at 28,726. It lost more than eight percent over the month of September. S&P and Nasdaq both dropped about one and a half percent today. S&P closed at 35.86. The Nasdaq ended the week at 10,576. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. It's been nice to see the sun over the past few days, but it's going to be taking a break over the next few. Tonight, mostly cloudy, lows about 51. Tomorrow, overcast and damp with rain showers likely in the afternoon, up around 60 for a high. Sunday, cloudy, the chance of rain in the morning, gusty breezes, highs about 57. It is 57 degrees now in the Boston area at 421.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Ceres, a Boston-based nonprofit advocating for climate-smart policies and a net-zero economy. More at ceres.org slash WBUR. This is WBUR. Back to All Things Considered in just about three minutes. But right now, we just want to tell you, we've actually got some good news to report. We're so happy to report good news in this, well, any time. But yes, during the fall fundraiser as well, we now have $93,000 left to raise in the fund drive. It's down from what it was early this morning. So thank you for those of you who've been helping us make up a gap, and we did indeed have a significant gap to make up. We still do, but we're coming close. We're pulling in. So thank you for those who are calling. If you haven't, now is the time because the fun drive is over at 7 o'clock tonight. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with reporter and host Deborah Becker. Hello there. Well, yes, $93,000 is still a gap, and we have, what, (laughs) just a few hours to raise. So we really are counting on you. And we're asking you to really consider, you know, the state of journalism, the industry, which has really taken a hit over the past couple of years. And as you've probably noticed, a lot of journalism organizations have really cut back, have had to reduce their stories and their content. But, you know, we have been able to stay strong. And that's because of our funding model. That's because we rely on you. And we're asking you to make a pledge now so we can continue to rely on you to reach this overall fundraising goal by 7 o'clock tonight. We know that you know you can trust us. You can trust the stories you hear on the radio. You can trust what you read on our website. We're here for you. We're bringing you all the news, whether it's, you know, the storm in the south, uh, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's the economy, whether it's local politics. It's always here for you. What we need you to do right now is whatever you can, whatever amount you're comfortable with, but make that pledge so we can reach this fundraising goal in the next few hours. Here's the number. It's one 800 and the website's WBUR.org. You know, some of the people who've called in just today, in fact, um, we've, we've written down some of their comments, and they're really great. I think I had like four people hand me these comments earlier today. Uh, here's one that says, I travel in between Boston public schools, in, or public schools in the Boston area. I never mind getting stuck in traffic because BUR keeps me informed and curious while waiting for the light to change to green. My commute <laughs> finds me all over the world, thanks to WBUR. And we are so grateful for everybody who has called in and made a pledge. We know you don't have to. You know you don't have to. But uh, if you want us to be strong, then please do, because everything that you hear on the air is the result of funds that you and uh, your fellow listeners have contributed in the past. At least we hope you have. And it's a way to make an investment in your listening in the future by calling in right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Once again, we need to raise still $93,000 and do it by 7 o'clock tonight to end this fund drive successfully. And you know what else our fundraising model allows? It allows for editorial independence. The only people that we are beholden to is you. We are not beholden to corporations or the government, just to you, to bringing the stories, the information that we know is important and that will help you better understand the world. Put a dollar value on that right now. Do what you can, what you're comfortable with, but help us reach this fall fundraising goal by 7 o'clock tonight. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. The fund drive is coming to a fast end tonight. Please include your contribution in our total budget. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, 
committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed treaties illegally annexing even more of Ukraine. And he's vowing to protect the areas by, quote, any means necessary. The annexation of these territories has been widely condemned by the U.S. and by much of the international community. To try to understand what Putin's latest moves mean, we're joined now by Dara Masico. She's a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation, focusing on defense issues in Russia. She joins us on the line from Arlington, Virginia. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So first, I just have a basic question for you. Why is Putin even doing this? Like, how does it help them either domestically or internationally? Well, from my vantage point, and I I look at the Russian military, they need the war to end at an intense level, like they've been fighting it for the last few months. They need it to end immediately. Mm -hmm. And from their perspective, the quickest way to do that is to annex these territories and immediately start discussing how they're going to defend them with all means possible, which is a vague reference to Russia's nuclear arsenal, and then offering a uh, poison chalice ceasefire to Kyiv that Kyiv cannot accept. And the goal of this is to bring the fighting to a close on their terms, to buy them time to repair and regenerate. But Russia doesn't actually militarily control much of the territory that Putin has now annexed. So How much does all of this risk backfiring on him, you think? Um, That is a very astute observation, and there are several uh, logic bombs within the annexation that he just announced today. Um, You are correct. Russia does not control the entirety of those Ukrainian oblasts. So essentially what he's just done by annexing the territories is admit that there are Ukrainian forces on quote-unquote Russian territory. Um, Unfortunately for his logic, his forces in those areas are not in a position to force Ukrainian army units out of the picture. They are exhausted and depleted. Right. But he is vowing, Putin is vowing to protect the newly annexed territories by, quote, all available means. As you point out, there's a threat here, a veiled threat at least, that that may include a nuclear weapon. How real is that threat? Well, this is this is part of the playbook that they use. They did this after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. This is part of their plan. In terms of how realistic it is in the short term, a few things will influence that decision making. I think right now it's pretty low probability. And I say that because they did opt to mobilize if they believed that they did not have an operational way forward on the battlefield, they wouldn't have undertaken the very politically risky decision to order a mobilization. My assumption is that they're going to try to use these forces to stabilize their holdings that they have right now and just hold on to what they've taken from Ukraine. So if that succeeds, then he does not need to use other tools to escalate. However, it's very risky. Even as Russia annexes these regions, the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues. If Ukraine continues to overrun Russian forces in territories that Russia is declaring as its own now, what does that mean for Putin? Is he backed into a corner? 
He is. He has backed himself into a corner with this annexation, both politically and not having the means to negotiate with Kyiv moving forward, and also the domestic picture at home. Well, if Putin has burned bridges, does that raise the risk that he does something catastrophic here? We are, in my view, heading into uncharted waters. The fact that he has taken the step of ordering a, what he calls partial mobilization, this is a pretty extreme step Mm -hmm. in terms of the risks of blowbacks to him inside Russia. My concern is that if this does not work, um, what options does he have left to try to force a closure to this war before it gets worse for Russia? And I worry that that could be targeted cyber attacks against Ukraine and its supporters. I saw the Russian defense minister making veiled threats against NATO's satellite constellation. Um, And then there is the specter of uh, nuclear coercion. But I do note that even if it gets to that point, there's a lot of signals that will be picked up on before such weapons could be used. Mm -hmm. So uh, signaling the intent, moving them around, demonstrating the use, having an exercise, it won't be a bolt from the blue. But we are entering into a dangerous new phase. That is Dara Massico, senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. Drum Folk is a high-energy, thrilling, percussive celebration inspired by the Stono Rebellion of 1739 in Boston, October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater. Tickets at artsemerson.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hurricane Ian strikes again, hitting South Carolina today, threatening the historic city of Charleston with severe flooding. This after the deadly storm caused catastrophic damage in Florida, trapping thousands of people in their homes. In Fort Myers, Florida, Sid Cleave says he abandoned his plans to ride out the storm yesterday when a large motorboat broke loose and wedged against his boat at the marina. I have animals on board the boat and I was concerned about them, these guys here. I was worried about them, so I... I uh, got them off the boat and then realized I was waist deep in, in water and it was strong, the current was strong and, and the winds were strong and, and uh, by the time I got them to safety and back to the boat, there was no, no getting back on it. Nearly two million people are still without power in Florida. Meanwhile, Hurricane Ian has weakened as it moves into coastal South Carolina. In New York, the United Nations Security Council is scheduled to vote on a U.S. Albanian proposed resolution condemning Russia's referendums on the four mostly occupied territories of Ukraine. As Linda Fasulo tells us, Western countries have described the referendums as a sham. The draft resolution is expected to denounce the results of the referenda, urge nations not to recognize any change in the status of Ukraine, and demand that Russia withdraw its forces from the country. A majority of council members are expected to approve the draft, with a near certain veto expected from Russia. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said Moscow's effort to annex the territories is illegal, must not be accepted, and would jeopardize peace prospects. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield has said if the resolution is vetoed, it will likely be taken up and adopted as a non-binding measure by the 193-member General Assembly, where Moscow doesn't have veto power. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There is renewed hope for people living with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. The Food and Drug Administration has approved an experimental drug developed by Cambridge-based Amelix Pharmaceuticals. WBUR's Josie Guarino spoke with a Beverly woman who is devoted to finding a cure for the disease that ended her son's life when he was 34. Nancy Frades is the mother behind the Ice Bucket Challenge. The annual event raises millions of dollars for ALS research. She's hopeful this new treatment will slow the progression of ALS by up to a year. If my son had an extra 10 to 12 months, he would have seen his 35th birthday. He would have had another Christmas morning with his daughter Lucy. He would have been at her next birthday party. But not only that, maybe he would have been alive for when the next discovery comes along. Frades is not overly concerned. The FDA based its approval on a limited study. She says it's more important that families have treatment options. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Improvements to the Port of Boston are complete. Today, officials with Massport celebrated the end of the $850 million project. It was roughly a decade in the making and involved dredging Boston Harbor to allow for larger ships, building new berths, and installing three new cranes at Connolly Terminal. The terminal in South Boston is New England's only full-service container port. Celtics are signing forward and six-time All-Star Blake Griffin. A league source tells the Boston Globe the team has agreed to a one-year contract with 33-year-old Griffin. He's expected to fill in for players in the Celtics' front court who are out with injuries. And the 204th Topsfield Fair is underway. It's the first day of the event today. Fair spokesman David Thompson says the poultry building is going to be closed this year as a precaution against avian flu. A dead goose was recently found nearby. Thompson says the current strains of avian flu cannot be contracted by humans. It does spread pretty quickly throughout bird populations. So on the very outside chance that there was a contaminated bird in the area, we wouldn't want to bring in poultry from different farms and then send them back to their flocks and have them spread the disease. The Thompsonville Fair will run until Indigenous Peoples Day, October 10th. This is WBUR. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum. With after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at pem.org slash Halloween. Clouds move in as the day comes to an end. Tonight's lows should be about 51. Tomorrow, clouds stick around. We could have rain in the afternoon. Highs about 60 tops. Sunday's looking gray as well. Some early morning rain, strong breezes during the day. Highs about 57, which is what it is now in the Boston area. 57 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com and from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. There are fewer protesters on the streets of Iran today. Security forces are cracking down on the anti-government demonstrations that followed the death of 22-year-old Masha Amini. The young Kurdish woman died earlier this month while in the custody of Tehran's Guidance Patrol, more commonly known as the Morality Police. We wanted to learn more about the Morality Police and their place in Iranian society. 
Professor Roxanne Farman Farmayon teaches international politics of the Middle East and North Africa at the University of Cambridge. We asked her about the modern history of the Guidance Patrol. It was established formally in the early 1990s after the Iran-Iraq War. But in fact, the compulsion to wear the veil had already become something that was required inside Iran before that and had come in after the revolution in 1979. And between 1979 and 1990, when the morality police was formally set up, there was a great deal of pressure on women, often by just people in the streets or by random members of the police forces. And they were often harassed and attacked for not correctly wearing the hijab. You mentioned that much of their focus is on women and how they dress. Are there other areas that the morality police focus on? Well, actually, when the leader of the revolution, the cleric Khomeini, came in, he ensured that Islamic dress and modesty was something that everyone should practice. And in fact, that has been something that is part and parcel of the doctrine of Islam. So they do have a mandate to have a look at how men present themselves. And in fact, this is one of the ironies of the whole picture in Iran, because back in 1936, the Shah's father banned veils as something very unmodern. And in fact, police beat women who wore them at mm. that time. And then, you know, 40 years later, it went through a complete reversal. And the cleric that led the revolution, Khomeini, mandated that the Islamic dress code was now required. Today, on a practical level, how much control does the Guidance Patrol have on the day-to-day -day lives of people in Iran, and particularly the women who live there? Well, it has varied over time, and that variability reflects the nature of the political doctrine that's held by the president. If it's a reformist president and party that's in power, there will be less strict rules that are imposed. What the women face are fines. They could receive lashes, up to 74 lashes. And although it's illegal, often they also suffer beatings or knife attacks or even acid thrown at them by officials and by bystanders. You know, there have been protests and struggles about police brutality in a number of countries, including here in the U.S. So I'd like to ask you, what makes the concerns about the Guidance Patrol different? Well, the morality police or guidance patrol are completely focused on women. And it is an example of how the states will take women's rights and abuse them. And in this particular case, where a young woman died as a result of simply not wearing her veil correctly, that was a trigger for the people of Iran who are already feeling a great deal of grievance against the way that the state has been handling their economic futures and their ability to feel a sense of liberty and exercise their rights. It is for that reason that the morality police have become such a target of the upset that we're seeing sweep through the country. That was University of Cambridge Professor Roxanne Farman Farmayon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we're hoping you'll do that right now if you haven't. By the way, if you have, thank you so much for realizing your role in what we do. We would not be here if it were not for your listener support, not just your listening, but your dollars as well. We are coming to the end of this fall fund drive, and we are looking to end it with the final amount that we need. It is not an insignificant amount, $87,000. We have come a long way, and we've regained some ground that we lost. $87,000, though, is what we have to raise between now and 7 o'clock tonight. So please let us hear from you. Chip away at that with us, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Deborah Becker. Hello there, Lisa. Hello, everyone. $87,000, about two hours and 20 minutes. We need your help, quite simply. We need your help to be able to do this. And of course, so we're behind in our fundraising goal because that's a big lift to try to do that in a very short period of time, to raise that amount in a short period of time. But we were even further behind earlier today. So so what that says to us is that you can do it. You can make a pledge. You recognize the value of this radio station and the value of fund drives just like this one. So please, do your part and make a pledge before the fundraiser ends at 7 o'clock tonight because really all we're trying to do is reach the goal that's set to meet our budget to keep our journalism strong for you. So make your pledge as soon as you can. It's 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I support WBUR because it keeps me informed, it enriches my life, and it keeps me connected to the world around me in a way that I don't have time to do all by myself. They help me to stay educated on the issues that are going on, not only in the nation but in the world, and I want to contribute to that and help them be able to give those services, not only to me but to everyone in the community. I don't want to see one of the last bastions of quality journalism go by the wayside. I want WBUR to remain independent, and the only way that happens is if I contribute and if other people contribute. Become a member today. Give monthly at WBUR.org. There is a direct tie between how much we get in these fund drives and how much we can do on air, online, uh, in our podcast as well at City Space. Our costs are real, and as uh, Deborah said, the, the amount of money that we need to raise now, $87,000 more before 7 o'clock tonight. This is not so we can buy a villa, so we can all, all go there to the Italian coast be and nice just though. enjoy it. Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, it's it's not for a jacuzzi. It's for uh, the news that you get, um, the, that you rely on, independent news that only comes with no commercial interest. We don't have commercials. We don't have commercial interests. We have listeners like you to support us, and thankfully you have, and that's gotten us as strong as we are. So if you haven't given, please do it now. If you have given, thank you so much. Um, there are a lot of people, more people who have not given than have out there. So we're asking you to do your part right now because we can't afford to end this fund drive short of our uh, ultimate goal, one 800 
287wbur.org. You know, some listeners have, have allowed us to read some comments, and uh, they've given us some comments here, Lisa, and they're great. I have to say, it's it's just terrific to hear listeners uh, express these kind of things uh, during the fundraiser. But here's one. It's saying, considering all the monthly subscriptions our family has to various streaming services and whatnot, and how much I rely on WBUR to provide high-quality, unbiased information on local and global news, it's unthinkable that I would not make a monthly donation. I hope everyone who listens will remind themselves how crucial it is to support public broadcasting. And we didn't write that. <laughs> that was a listener who we said could've. that. We could have. But we didn't. But thank you. Thank you for the sentiment. Thank you for your donation. If you haven't had a chance to make your pledge yet during this fundraiser, help us meet our fundraising goal. We've got just a little more than two hours left. This is it, the final stretch of the fall fundraiser, and we need your pledge to be successful. one 800 or We still have $87,000 to raise. We have to do it by 7 o'clock tonight. Just think about what you can do to help us chip away at that amount. What is the amount you can contribute? Make it a comfortable amount for you, but please just make the pledge. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health, Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Republicans are putting crime center stage nationwide, and Wisconsin's Senate race is one of the most prominent examples. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben just came back from talking to voters there and brings us this report. At the GOP Fall Fest in Racine, Wisconsin last weekend, Governor candidate Tim Michaels emphasized crime. There are thousands of laws on the books to, to reduce crime, to stop crime. It just takes proper leadership. So did Congressman Brian Stile. You're seeing the crime rates go up. And it's soft-on-crime politicians who continue to stand in the way. As did Republican incumbent Senator Ron Johnson. How about rising crime? I mean, you're aware of the fact that my opponent, Mandela Barnes, he's the guy who wrote the bill to release criminals without bail. Johnson is referring to Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes and his opposition to cash bail. Barnes argues his plan would keep people from, quote, buying their way out of jail. The attacks reflect what's going on nationally. In a memo earlier this month, the Republican National Committee highlighted crime as a way for Republicans to gain an advantage. Craig Gilbert is a fellow at Marquette University Law School and a columnist at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It's a pretty traditional kind of Republican message to paint Democrats as soft on crime. But it seems to be right now playing a bigger role in this campaign and certainly in the Republican advertising than in most of the statewide races that I can remember in Wisconsin. It's a decades-old tactic, and past attacks on crime have had racial or even racist components. Race has become a part of this fight as well. Supporters of Barnes, who is black, have accused Republicans of racism in ads like this one, which attacks Barnes on crime. A different Democrat, a dangerous Democrat. Johnson's campaign denied the ad as racist. Gilbert sees the attacks as part of a wider Republican strategy. Republicans are vulnerable with suburban voters, certainly on the abortion issue and certainly in the Trump era. I think Republicans see crime as a way to kind of counter that trend. But then he added there are real existing fears about crime. 
In Milwaukee, the murder rate is up, which has many voters worried, including Democrats. I met Jen Witten outside of a Mandela Barnes event. I do think about crime. We live in Milwaukee, which is a very, unfortunately, high crime city. I think about crime more in terms of, like, what I'm, what we're doing to keep our children safe. Her main issue this year is guns in schools, traditionally framed as a separate issue from crime. Talking to voters emphasizes that especially when crime is up, neither party has a monopoly on worrying about it. Rather, crime becomes another example of how America's problems become reflections of very different worldviews. At the Barnes rally, Melanie McClellan argued for community investment and against the charge that Barnes wants to cut police funding. What he wants to do is just reposition those funds to go into other resources instead of cutting back on police forces because we obviously need police, you know, to help in the community. Meanwhile, outside of Fall Fest, Republican voter Rich Strom told me that harsher punishments could help reduce crime. I do a lot of hunting. I'm a guns guy. But I would like to see when they're used illegally, boy, throw, you know, lock them up. Take, you know, this should really be taken seriously. Polls suggest Johnson has gained ground in recent weeks. It's impossible to know how much these attacks caused that shift. Regardless, Barnes is on the counteroffensive. He started a campaign push this week called Ron Against Roe to maintain the focus on abortion. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Spain today, Jorge Vilda, the coach of the national women's soccer team, addressed the crisis rattling his organization. A week ago, 15 players on the team submitted identical emails to the Royal Spanish Football Federation. They said they couldn't play on the national team until there are changes made. And today, Coach Vilda went both on the attack and the defense. He left those 15 players off the roster for upcoming games, and he said the players never came to him with their complaints. Six of the 15 players who came forward play for FC Barcelona, and joining us now from Barcelona is freelance reporter Alan Ruiz Terol to explain more. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So, Alan, how did we get to this point? Spain is seen as a rising superpower in women's soccer, with many players coming from FC Barcelona. But while Barcelona has been extremely successful, the Spanish national team hasn't quite fulfilled its potential. Uh, at the World Cup, they were defeated by the US, and last summer in the European Championship, they lost against England. And well, while it's worth noting that in both tournaments, they were defeated by the eventual champions, still the Spanish players believe that things need to change in order for them to be able to compete at the highest level. And just to hear what the players have to say, let's have a listen to uh, the captain of the national team, Irene Paredes, who spoke at a press conference a month ago. Somos un equipo super ambicioso. As a team, we are super ambitious and we want to improve, we want to win, and we believe there are certain internal aspects that need to change. Well, apparently these internal aspects didn't change because a week ago, 15 players sent emails to the Federation saying the situation was affecting them emotionally and they no longer wanted to play for the national team unless uh, their concerns were addressed. And how has the Federation responded to their claims? Well, the Federation sees the emails as a kind of blackmail and said it will not allow the players to question the continuity of the coach since it's not up to them. 
The players themselves have denied calling for Coach Bilda's resignation, but media reports make it clear that he's lost their support. And while the specific complaints are not completely public, uh, some reports say the players believe that training sessions should be more demanding, physically speaking, also the, the tactics uh, need to improve, and Bilda himself has faced criticism over whether he is actually qualified for the job since he lacks experience coaching a professional team. And he has spoken now publicly about this dispute. What did you hear from him today during that press conference? Yes, today he, he appeared at a press conference and announced that the 15 players who sent the email uh, would not be playing into friendly matches against Sweden and the US. Uh, of course, he also addressed the standoff with the players and defended himself against the criticism. Uh, let's hear what he, what he said. No es bueno para nadie. This is not good for anybody. We're embarrassing ourselves in front of the world when we should instead be proud of our national team. He made it clear that he feels the Federation has his back, so he's not planning to resign. But there's a question still looming. How long can this last? Because next year is the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, and Spain was expected to be one of the biggest contenders to win the trophy. But if nothing changes, some of the biggest stars, not only in the Spanish national team, but also in the world of women's soccer, could miss the tournament. That is Alan Ruiz Terol from Barcelona. Thank you. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Fabulation or the Reeducation of Undine, a play that asks, Can you ever really go home again? Through October 9th, lyricstage.com. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. Here's the number where you can call right now, 1-800-909-9287, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org. We're just taking uh, just a couple of minutes out of All Things Considered, a show that has already brought you so much news and information today, updates from Florida, Excuse me, updates from Florida, updates from South Carolina as well as Hurricane Ian bears down on South Carolina. We've heard about the annexation and the war in uh, Ukraine, and we heard about sports as well. This is all what you get when you listen to WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call with your pledge. You can also pledge online at WBUR.org. But, but make sure you pledge because the fundraiser is winding down. This is our fall fund drive. We take just a couple of minutes in between all that news. We take just a few minutes to remind you of the important role you play in this radio station. You provide the money we need to be a source of strong journalism, independent journalism for you every single day. And that's what we're asking you to pledge for during this fundraiser. We've got about $82,000 left to raise in the next two hours or so. So we really need you to step up to make that pledge to help us reach this fundraising goal. You know, Lisa mentioned some of the stories. I mean, we've been hearing about the about the storm in the South, about Ian and what's happening there, protests in Iran, the new Lou Gehrig's disease drug. I mean, it's all here for you. It's comprehensive news and information. What's it worth to you? Put a dollar value on 
on it and pledge today. Here's the number again. It's 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, so many people tell us how important the radio station is. And we've, we've talked to many of you. So thank you. Thank you for articulating that. And thank you for pledging. Here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe, who shares what two listeners told her. WBUR is smart, informative, and heartwarming. I feel like when I listen first thing in the morning, it's part of my inner exercise preparing me for the day. Another said, I've relied on WBUR for decades to inform me on the important issues of our day, even on the worst news day. WBUR makes sure to remind me that humanity still exists at the end, and that is why I listen. And I love that our listeners can sum things up so beautifully. And I especially love that that person touched on our humanity because I think there is something very special about this medium. It's intimate, it's deep, and we develop real relationships with our audience. And it's not just information. It really captures their head and heart and is a true sort of human experience. It's WBUR CEO Margaret Lowe about what, some of, about what some of our listeners have shared regarding how essential WBUR is to them. Think about the role WBUR plays in your life and make a gift during this fall fundraiser, during the last two hours of our fall fundraiser. Here's the number again. It's 1-800-909-9287. And one of the listeners uh, who has called in today said, I've been listening for years, but I had never been in a position where I could afford to donate. Now that I can, I feel it's my turn. So I want to give to those who, uh, for those who cannot afford to donate right now and have access to everything the station offers. Mm -hmm. It's my small act of paying it forward. So that's a person who knows that he or she doesn't have to give, but did anyway and did for those who can't give right now. So because uh, you know that the stronger we are, the stronger the community around us is, we hope that you will be part of that community, spread the word, and keep us strong. We still need to raise $82,000 by 7 o'clock tonight. If all of you listening right now would pitch in, we would make it. In fact, we would make it instantly. Just give whatever you can afford. And if you can do it monthly, uh, $15 a month, $12 a month, whatever it is, we would very much appreciate that as well. Become a sustainer. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Going to the news headlines of the day in just about a minute, but we hope you'll call before that. Right, right. Just about a minute. We're going right back to the news, bringing you the news, just reminding you that the money to bring you this news comes from you. And we're asking you to please make a pledge before this fun drive ends in just two hours from now. And think about what's happened to journalism. We don't want it to happen to WBUR. We don't want it to happen to your public radio station. We've been fortunate. I mean, we have a terrific investigative unit uh, that we've been able to create in just in just the past decade, done terrific stories, uh, things such as deaths in Massachusetts jails, uh, like hiring police chiefs, civil asset forfeiture. It's deep investigative reporting, stories you won't get anywhere else. We have it for you. We need you to help pay for it. So make a pledge right now. Do it before 7 o'clock tonight so we can reach this fundraising goal, so we can make our budget. That's all we're asking. We're hoping that you feel as though you have a stake in the success of the station because you do. In fact, when you make a pledge, you have an investment in us and in our strength. Here's how to do it. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go online at WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. 
covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at progressivecommercial.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Insperity, providing HR services for 30-plus years, including access to employee benefits and payroll. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandes, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. South Carolina is feeling the effects of Hurricane Ian as Georgia breathes a sigh of relief. As Emily Jones of member station WABE reports, the storm has made a second landfall between Charleston and Myrtle Beach today as a Category 1 hurricane with 85-mile-an-hour winds. More than 200,000 people are now without power there. Officials in South Carolina are urging people to stay safely indoors as rain, wind, and flooding from Hurricane Ian batter the coast. The storm has closed roads mostly due to flooding and knocked out power for thousands. The low-lying Charleston area is prone to floods and likely to see high water levels from several feet of storm surge. Forecasters also predict dangerous wind as the storm moves through. Farther south, Georgia has escaped the worst of Ian's impact, seeing only minor flooding and limited power outages. Local officials have begun closing down their emergency operations. For NPR News, I'm Emily Jones in Savannah, Georgia. And in Florida, President Biden says his administration has deployed the largest team of first responders in recent history to help that state in the aftermath of Ian. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the storm has left widespread catastrophic destruction across the state, with 1.8 million people there still without power. Florida has only started to assess the damage. President Biden says it could take years to fully rebuild and recover from the storm. America's heart is literally breaking, just watching people watching on television. I just want the people of Florida to know we see what you're going through and we're with you. Search and rescue teams are working around the clock to save people who remain stranded. Video footage along beachfront communities shows piles of twisted debris where homes and businesses once stood. Hurricane Ian slammed ashore on Wednesday as one of the strongest storms ever to hit the U.S. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington. The Biden administration is announcing new sanctions on Russia and vowing to hold to account any individuals supporting Russia's annexation of parts of Ukraine. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The U.S. calls the annexation a clear violation of international law and says it will work with partners to punish anyone involved. The State Department is imposing visa restrictions on 910 individuals. They include members of the Russian military, Russian proxies in Ukraine, and military officials from Belarus. The Treasury Department is also adding members of both houses of the Russian parliament to a sanctions list and will do the same for family members of leading Russian figures, including the defense minister's wife and children. Any assets they might have in the U.S. would be frozen. The Treasury Department says it will expose how Russian politicians hide their wealth. 
Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A group of female employees at the MBTA who say they've been sexually harassed on the job recently met with the Federal Transit Administration. They have not filed an official complaint with the agency. The Boston Herald reports the women allege being ignored and even spat on when they raised harassment claims at work. The T says it reviews all complaints it receives and has no tolerance for discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. A resident of Milton shot and killed a black bear this morning as the animal attacked a chicken pen at the person's home. Eight chickens were killed by the 80-pound male bear. It's believed the bear also killed two goats at the same residence yesterday. The shooting's under investigation. State law says under certain circumstances, residents can kill a bear, damaging their property. Mass Wildlife says bears are becoming more common in eastern Mass as their range expands. Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown Boston will be closed to traffic once again this weekend. The State Department of Transportation will close the tunnel at 11 o'clock tonight. It will remain closed until Monday morning at 5 for restoration work. In the forecast, lots of clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures right about 50 degrees. Then for tomorrow and Sunday, some rain both days. Plenty gray, though, both days as well. Temperatures in the mid to upper 50s. 57 degrees now in Boston at 5.05. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at ceres.org slash WBUR. And Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. We're following the track of Hurricane Ian into South Carolina and then taking a look at Florida from up above. That's coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered. We're taking just three minutes here, and and we means Deborah Becker and me right now (laughs) to tell you that we are coming to a swift end of this fun drive. It is over, entirely over, at 7 o'clock tonight. Here's what we still need to raise, though, $79,000. We should say that we have raised, uh, let's see, we're down 3,000 since the last break, so thank you so much to those of you who are calling in. 79,000, though, is something we don't take for granted, so if you haven't called yet, please do it right now so we can end this fun drive successfully with you included. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. That's right. We're being as transparent as possible. Uh, we would love to say that we've met this goal or we were closer, but we're not. We need we need to raise $79,000 in less than two hours. It's a lot of money, but we know that we can do this with your help, and so we're asking you, This is the final stretch of our fall fundraiser. And we're saying, please, consider what WBUR brings to you and make a pledge today. Help us end this fund drive successfully. You know, many of you uh, shared your thoughts, gave us some feedback about the fundraiser, and and, uh, we wrote it down. And I'm looking at uh, various comments here. Thank you so much. We really have terrific listeners. But here's what what one listener wrote uh, when she contributed this morning. It hurts my heart to know that WBUR is behind on fundraising targets. So I am making another contribution because it all adds up. I consider it a voluntary subscription fee. We all need to do our part to ensure that WBUR is there for all of us going forward. Wonderful sentiment. Thank you so much for your for your double contribution during this fundraiser. But you, if you haven't had a chance to make your pledge yet to help us reach our fundraising goal by 7 o'clock tonight, then please do it now. It takes just about a minute. 
call. There are some terrific gifts you can get for your contribution. You can see them on the website at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Another one. I have always appreciated well-researched news and humanity stories, especially told without hostility and anger, mm. even though a story may be upsetting. Uh, we're, we are uh, at BUR intent on bringing you stories, even-handed stories without hype, uh, without partiality, and we know that that's what you appreciate. So please call in and support it. Here's the number again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Only two hours left in the fun drive, $79,000 left to raise. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington, D.C. Ian has come ashore again. After causing catastrophic destruction in Florida, the storm regained some of its strength over the Atlantic Ocean. It made landfall this afternoon as a Category 1 hurricane in South Carolina. It hit near Georgetown, which is between Charleston and Myrtle Beach, with sustained winds of 85 miles an hour. The storm is now a post-tropical cyclone, but the storm surge and flooding is potentially life-threatening, and a federal disaster declaration is in effect in South Carolina. Over 200,000 people lost power in that state, and that includes South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen, who is in Charleston and joins us now. Hi, Victoria. Hi there. Yes, I did in fact lose power and it's getting dark as we speak. Well, I hope you were taking care of yourself. Can you tell us a little bit what it was like when that storm came through? Yeah, you know, this afternoon got sunny, but that was certainly a change from earlier in the day. We have had plenty of rain. You know, we're talking to eight inches near the coast where I live and winds so strong at times that they blew some of my uh, unripe oranges off the trees hitting the windows. In downtown Charleston, streets flooded, cars got stuck, tree limbs are down. Let's just say there's plenty of cleanup to Mm. do in the coming days. And I need to mention that downtown Charleston sees flooding on sunny days when there's a high tide. Today we had both, a high tide and a storm surge, so flooding was a real problem. Now, the center of the storm made landfall in Georgetown. What can you tell me about that community? Yeah, Georgetown is a riverfront community about an hour north of Charleston. It too sees flooding even without a hurricane. And nearby is a resort community called Polly's Island. It saw surf so strong that a pier collapsed today. North of that, in Myrtle Beach, the swells were so large, waves reportedly washed over the boardwalk and even up to the hotel doors. There were reports of some rescues because of all the flooding. Now, emergency officials are saying this storm could have been much, much, much worse, but they're saying, you know what, people still need to take caution. They still need to hunker down because there are still flooded roadways out there, and at least 200,000 people are still without power across the state. Now, when this storm swept through Florida, it ripped a path of destruction as it moved across the state. What is expected as this storm moves across your state? Well, the storm is expected to turn north and northwest and lose strength throughout the night as it eventually makes its way to North Carolina and into Virginia, which, by the way, some 90,000 people, Mm. they are already without power just in North Carolina. In the about 45 seconds we have left, I know that you've been through a couple of hurricanes in South Carolina. So just for you personally, how does this compare? You know, it's really strange. This seems to be the track that they have been taking lately. You know, they will eye Charleston, and then they will turn farther north. But, you know, 
you got you got to keep an eye on because just last week was the anniversary of Hurricane Hugo, which did in fact make landfall in Charleston. So you have to stay aware. And a lot of folks I spoke with last night at the grocery store doing some last-minute shopping said they could not believe that we were going to get hit with a Category 1 hurricane because basically they were looking at Florida, and that was that. That is South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen. Victoria, thank you. Thank you for having me. The warden of a privately run detention facility in West Texas was arrested this week after he and his brother allegedly shot at a group of migrants, killing one and injuring another. Authorities say the migrants had stopped by the side of the road for a drink of water. Now, the detention center in West Texas, which once held detainees for ICE, has a history of serious abuse allegations. NPR's Joel Rose has been looking into this and joins us now. Hi, Joel. Hi, Elsa. So can you just first walk us through what happened here? Sure. Um, Investigators say a group of at least four migrants had stopped in the desert about an hour and a half outside of El Paso and about 15 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. The migrants had stopped to get water from a tank by the side of the road around 7 p.m., according to affidavits filed by law enforcement, when a truck with two men inside stopped and backed up. The migrants told investigators that the men shouted something like, come on out, in Spanish, only more profane. The migrants say then they hid in the brush until the men revved the engine of the truck. And when the migrants looked up to see if the truck had left, the driver fired two shots, according to the affidavits. One of the migrants, a man, was shot and killed. A second migrant, a woman, was shot in the stomach and survived. She is now recovering at a hospital in El Paso. Two suspects were taken into custody and charged with manslaughter. And the suspects here, what do we know about them? Mike Shepard and Mark Shepard are twin brothers, both 60 years old. Initially, they told investigators they were hunting for birds and then later said they were hunting for javelina, which is a a hog-like animal. And they deny that they yelled anything before firing. Until this week, Mike Shepard was the warden at the West Texas Detention Center. He has since been fired, according to a statement from LaSalle Corrections, excuse me, LaSalle Corrections, which is the private company that operates the facility, due to a, quote, off-duty incident. I believe been we accused have... Accused of violence okay. against immigrants. In 2018, a group of detainees from Somalia... Um, okay. In 2018, a group of detainees from Somalia described a week they spent at the jail Shepherd ran. The men say they were beaten, pepper sprayed, taunted with racial slurs, uh, including by Shepherd himself. ICE has not housed immigrants at the facility since late 2019, but the U.S. Marshal Service is still using it to hold detainees. Okay. I also understand that investigators are looking into another shooting in West Texas this week. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, there was a separate shooting in the same area on Wednesday. Investigators say they've arrested a 26-year-old man uh, who's accused of shooting another man in the face along the side of Interstate 10. Investigators have not said if the victim in that case was a migrant or if there's any link between the two incidents, but immigrant advocates are very concerned. That is NPR's Joel Rose. Thank you so much, Joel. One medical clinic in Spokane, Washington, has become a destination for people seeking abortions, especially those from neighboring Idaho, a state where the procedure is now virtually illegal. The clinic is also a destination for those protesting abortion in the name of God. But as Katie Riddle reports, some of the clinic's allies are making a Christian argument in support of reproductive rights. 
When she was a young woman, Andy Castro Lang learned firsthand about forbidden love. I worked in tandem with this young priest. Castro Lang was raised Roman Catholic. She met this priest in her first job, working as a lay campus minister. And we just, we fell totally for each other. <laughs> it was, it was a catastrophe. <laughs> They struggled to let each other go before finally admitting they couldn't. Instead, they decided to get married and accept the repercussions. It took us, what, three and a half years to get there. You traded your, your romance for the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. We did. We did. We had to. They both left the church and have now been married nearly 40 years. Castro Lang draws a straight line between this formative experience with Catholicism and her unyielding support for reproductive rights. There are so many ways that Christianity, our culture, in its patriarchy and in its misogyny, seek to control. And that includes the choice to end a pregnancy. Eventually, Castro Lang found her way back to a vocation born of faith. She became a pastor in the United Church of Christ. When Planned Parenthood here in Spokane opened a new building several years ago, she performed a blessing for the space. She reads aloud the words she delivered that day. May the mighty power of love be found in this place. She wanted, she says, to recognize the clinic as a sanctuary. Among all who serve here, and given freely to all who seek help and care in this place. Staff at the clinic say support from allies like Castro Lang is especially important recently. Since Roe was struck down, they say protesters have become more emboldened. Once a month, a group gathers across the street. They call themselves the Church at Planned Parenthood. On this evening, there are about 65 people. It's a relatively small number. Sometimes there are hundreds. They describe this as a worship service at the gates of hell. Leaders of this effort have pledged recently to intensify these protests along the Idaho border in what they call abortion hotspots. John Repsold is a local evangelical pastor. He's preaching outside in the dwindling twilight. In this battle for life, is it almost over in America? Uh Uh-uh. We're just beginning. We've just logged the first 50 years. Repsold tells the crowd that part of their job is to teach their own children about the dangers abortion poses to society. I want to make sure my kids are passionate about this. Repsold says his God has no tolerance for a world in which abortion is legal. The right to life is the most fundamental right we have. So it's a a non-negotiable. Yeah, because you take that right away and all other rights collapse. The importance of clergy getting involved is to say the Church of Planned Parenthood is not representative of Christians in Spokane. Deb Conklin has worked much of her life as a Methodist minister here. She says the occupation chose her. God decides you're going to do it and you don't get away with saying no. (laughs) And that kind of happened to me. As an ally for Planned Parenthood, Conklin has served as a clinic escort for patients in the past. In addition to being a minister, she's also an attorney. I've just always been really passionate about justice, and for me, that's a moral, ethical, and faith-based 
stance. Now she's running for office for the position of county prosecutor in Spokane. She's pledged to protect reproductive rights if she wins. She describes running for office a bit like becoming a pastor. She feels called to do it. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Spokane. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. The Dow lost 500 points, about one and three quarters percent to close at 28,726. It lost more than 8 percent through the month of September. S&P and Nasdaq both dropped about one and a half percent today. S&P closed at 35.86. The Nasdaq ended the week at 10,576. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon, snhu.edu. Plenty of clouds around overnight tonight and for the weekend, in fact, as well. Look for lows tonight about 51 degrees. For tomorrow, clouds rain in the afternoon, highs about 60. Sunday is looking overcast as well. Some rain early in the morning. Strong breezes around, highs about 57. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash gbfb. It's important for me to be a WBUR member because it doesn't seem right that I would be getting all of this information, all of this news, and find joy in some of the other programs if I wasn't paying for it and I wasn't supporting it. It's a nice opportunity to participate in the programming and the ideas that the station promotes. I think we all get to say something with our money, even if we give modest amounts. With that money, we make something happen. Your modest monthly gift will make a meaningful difference. Give monthly at WBUR.org. By giving monthly, you become a sustainer, and you decide what modest is for you. We're not asking you to pay the whole freight. And by the way, speaking of the whole freight, $78,000, that's what's left between now and a successful end to the fund drive. We would love to make it by 7 o'clock tonight when the fund drive is ending completely. So please, we're asking you to do your part. Make an affordable pledge at WBUR.org or uh, on the phone at one 800 909 Eight seven. I'm Lisa Mullins here with Deborah Becker. It's been a, a little more than a week of fundraising, of asking you to please make a pledge, please do your part. And we were really behind earlier today, but so many people said, you know what, I am going to do my part and help out. I am not going to let WBUR not successfully meet its fundraising goal by 7 o'clock tonight. So thank you if you heard that message and you made a pledge. But as Lisa said, we're still $78,000 short and we've got about an hour and 40 minutes left. That's a lot of money to raise in an hour and 40 minutes. So please do your part now. We know that if everyone listening right now did make a pledge, we'd reach that goal. But we're asking you, if you haven't, to try to do it now. Do it if you can. It takes just about a minute. Help us have a successful fall fundraiser with your pledge. Here's the number again. It's one 800 909 
1-800-273-9287 or go online at WBUR.org. We've had uh, somewhere close to 4,000 people. 4,000 people have made contributions during this fund drive. We are so indebted to them. I'm not sure how many became sustainers. If you can become a sustainer, um, that would have an even greater impact for us. We appreciate every pledge, by the way, but it would uh, allow you to make it more affordable if you break down your donation to WBUR to maybe $10 a month, $15, $20 a month, and it would allow us to know how much we're going to have in the kitty. So every time you hear a story, when you make a pledge of support to WBUR, you can take ownership of part of that story. Um, Every time we add a podcast, every time we present another fantastic show at City Space, we have you to thank for that. You have yourselves to thank for that as well. Here's where we stand right now. Still $78,000. That's no small amount. We have to uh, make it by 7 o'clock tonight. It is now Mm 75,000. Thank you to those of you who've called in just in the past couple of minutes. We are really, truly grateful. As Deb said, we have had to come from behind and make up for some lost time in this fund drive. You have helped us do that, but we still have $75,000 to raise. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We have such terrific listeners, and we are very fortunate to have this fundraising model. It allows us to be funded free of influence. It allows us to have editorial independence. And we know that you appreciate that. But it can't stay this way unless it continues to work. Help it work. Help this be a successful fund drive with your pledge before 7 o'clock tonight. $75,000 left to raise in an uh, an hour and a half. (laughs) Oh gosh, I hate (laughs) to even say it. Here's the number. It's 1-800-909-9287 or online at WBUR.org. It sounds undoable. It is doable. Thanks to those of you who call. Please do it right now. 1-800-909-9287 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. The fund drive is over by 7. Please call before that. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from DuckDuckGo committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Inflation is affecting people all over the world, but some are feeling it more acutely than others. The generation just coming into adulthood now, Gen Z, is feeling especially pinched. NPR's Taylor Jennings Brown reports. If you want to know how Gen Z feels about something, TikTok is a great place to start. They're all over it. First recession, what a vibe. Oh, you mean another Great Depression? Try me, I'm already depressed. Pasha Grozdov, who has 430,000 followers, posts snarky takes on the economy with this video of him strutting through a city pretending to not have a care in the world. TikTok is full of eye-rolling Gen Z sarcasm. Like these, from at MC Hammer 608 and at Air Force Journey, trying to get something to eat. Hey, can I just get a small uh, vanilla frosty? Sixty-two fifty. Your next month's rent. What? Full four. Six dollars for Doritos. <laughs> Every day low. But TikToker at M Kathy makes it clear there's real concerns too. Deep down, yes, I would love to achieve my dreams, but the world is gonna melt in a decade, and college costs a million dollars. So instead of investing in my future, I have decided to just simply vibe. 
Talk to Gen Z off of TikTok, and it's clear that inflation has many feeling hopeless. Here's Marcus McCall and Kayla Omani. There's no way for me at my big age, as I like to call it, to like move out even comfortably, let alone budgeting. I'm not trying to live at home with my mom. It's just the housing costs right now are so wild. Betsy Stevenson, an economist at the University of Michigan, says she can understand why inflation is really bumming people out who are just now coming of age. Inflation has been pretty darn stable for your whole life. And even even some of your parents' life. And then all of a sudden we hit 2021 and it's like, what's happening? What's happening is that inflation is now around 8%, compared to 1% or 2% when Gen Z years were growing up. But in Stevenson's eyes, when it comes to inflation, Gen Z is actually in a much better position than people who are older now. They should count themselves lucky for being on the younger end rather than someone watching their life savings get eroded by inflation as we talk. She says Gen Z actually holds a really valuable asset right now, but they just might not realize it. It's easier for young people to switch jobs or to move someplace where there's better opportunity. What we see right now in, in the current economy is that people who are changing jobs are getting the biggest wage increases. So look around and look for maybe another job out there that's willing to pay you more or use that outside offer to negotiate with your current boss. Wages have been on the rise for all workers this past year, but especially for Gen Z. Their wages are increasing annually twice as fast as millennials and Gen X. Kyla Scanlon is 25. She makes TikToks about the economy and has more than 140,000 followers. She acknowledges Gen Z's wages are rising, but... Younger people are normally earlier in their earning power cycle, so they're not making as much usually as, as the older generation. So I think it kind of nets out to be about the same impact. Both the University of Michigan's Betsy Stevenson and Scanlon agree. People who make less money feel inflation more if you go to a restaurant and it's 20% more to get the same plate of food that you normally get, um, you're still going to be like, dang, that sucks. She says young people still have to get groceries, buy gas, and pay bills like rent, which has gone up at least 15% since last year. And not all young people have the flexibility to take advantage of a hot job market. Some have other responsibilities and less room for riskier moves. So Gen Z is clearly feeling pinched by inflation. and like everybody else, they want to know how it can be fixed. But unlike their parents, they're going to TikToks for answers. Like this one by Scanlon. And of course, are rate hikes even the right solution here? Probably not. It really boils down to improving supply chains, improving coordination, improving the broad labor market. And at the risk of sounding cliche, the past isn't always predictive of future results. For NPR News, I'm Taylor Jennings-Brown. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ian made landfall near Georgetown, South Carolina as a Category 1 storm this afternoon. Now a slightly weaker tropical storm, it's knocked out trees, power lines, and left many areas in historic downtown Charleston underwater. 
Forecasters warn the danger from Ian is far from over as it pushes north with threatening storm surge. Governor Roy Cooper is urging folks to stay out of the way because of the dangers posed by flash flooding. This is uh, why we want people to stay off the roads because sometimes people can find themselves in a situation where roads are flooding and we know it does not take much to move a car. More than 100,000 customers are currently without power in South Carolina. Damage from Ian is light so far as the storm continues to move up the Atlantic. Ukraine's president is responding to Russia's annexation today of nearly 15 percent of his country by seeking a rapid entrance into NATO. NPR's Jason Bobian in southern Ukraine reports the president says negotiations with Russia are now impossible. In a rambling speech, Russian President Putin declared that four regions of Ukraine that are currently occupied by his troops are now formally part of the Russian Federation and will be, in his words, forever. Ukrainian President Zelensky responded by immediately saying Ukraine will apply to join NATO. Russia, Zelensky said, tries to steal what doesn't belong to it and rewrite borders through murder, blackmail and lies. Even with NATO on its side, getting formally admitted to the defensive alliance may be difficult for Ukraine in the midst of a war. It requires the unanimous approval of all 30 of the alliance's current member states. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Mykolaiv, Ukraine. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Fare gates are going up at North Station commuter rail platforms. Beginning tomorrow, passengers will have to tap passes or scan digital tickets before they board. Steve Poftak is the general manager of the MBTA. He says the commuter rail has been losing money because busy conductors sometimes don't have time to check tickets on the trains. Our estimate was that we lose 4 to 8 percent of our fare revenue to fare non-collection. I've had a number of people grab me and anecdotally say they think it's significantly higher than that. Poftak says fare gates are coming soon to South Station and Back Bay Station. A woman accused of setting an apartment building fire that killed four people in Worcester last May is being held without bail. 36-year-old Yvonne Ngori pleaded not guilty at her arraignment today. She had been a tenant of the building. Prosecutors did not offer a motive. One of the people killed in the fire was Marcel Fontaine. Fontaine sued the InfoWars website in 2018 for posting his photo on its website, wrongly depicting him as the gunman in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Florida, where 17 people died. The case is pending. That case is pending in court. The Lizard Lounge in Cambridge welcomes back music lovers tonight for the first time since the pandemic began. WBR's Jen Stanley has more. After 30 months, the mainstay of the local scene is reopening with two performances from Club Delph and Lyle Brewer. The Lizard Lounge's capacity is just over 100 people. Co-owner Holly Heslop says the intimacy makes the venue special, but it's also helped delay its reopening. We were trying to wait for that time that felt to us that people would be safe. And that time has luckily arrived. <laughs> so we're, we're all so thrilled that we're going to be able to do it and have this incredible lineup the first weekend. It feels very, very good. Tickets for tonight's show are sold out online, but a limited number will be available at the door. Proof of vaccination is required. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jen Stanley. Patriots quarterback Mac Jones will not play Sunday in Green Bay. He's recovering from an ankle injury sustained last weekend. The team officially ruled him out this afternoon. Red Sox start up a three-game series in Toronto tonight. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops. 
helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. Tonight, mostly cloudy, lows about 51 degrees. Tomorrow, overcast and damp. Rain showers likely in the afternoon. Up around 60 tops tomorrow. Sunday, cloudy. The chance of rain in the morning. Gusty breezes. Highs about 57. 55 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Southwest Florida continues to bear the brunt of the damage from Hurricane Ian. The area near Fort Myers was especially hard hit, and officials say it could take days or longer to get a real understanding of the extent of the damage. But it is clear that the devastation is far-reaching, something that is easier to understand from the air. And that is exactly where reporter Eileen Kelly from member station WGCU is right now in a helicopter over southwest Florida. Hello up there. Eileen Kelly, can you hear us? Um, Yes, I I can hear you. Are you able to hear me? Yes, we can hear you loud and clear so far. Okay, so first, Eileen, can you just can you just describe for us what you're seeing from up there? Sorry. Sorry, I kind of lost you there. Can you repeat that? Sure. Can you just first describe what you're seeing from up there? Okay. Um, we just passed Fort Myers Beach, and it largely looks like a bomb went off. It's just smithereens. Eileen? Eileen, can you hear me? It looks like we may have lost our connection with Eileen Kelly who is currently in a helicopter over southwest Florida. Russian President Vladimir Putin today formally made four regions of Ukraine that are currently occupied by his troops territories of the Russian Federation. The West swiftly and widely condemned the move. President Biden reiterated the U.S.'s support for Ukraine and had this to say about Putin. He can't seize his neighbor's territory and get away with it. It's as simple as that. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Mykolaiv, Ukraine. That's a city very close to one of the regions that was subsumed by Russia today. Hi, Jason. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so how is this announcement being received in Ukraine so far? You know, it was clear that this was coming. So people really expected this. It's the same playbook that Putin used in 2014 after he invaded Crimea. He then held a referendum. Then he declared that Crimea is part of Russia because that's what Crimea supposedly wants. Um, One official here just shrugged when I asked him about this today. He said, you know, we're still at war. Ukraine still has no other option than to win. Well, what about President Volodymyr Zelensky? Like, what's been his response to this declaration by Russia that they're annexing, what, roughly 15 percent of Ukrainian land? Yeah. Well, Zelensky's people say that he didn't even watch the rambling speech uh, in which Putin (laughs) 
framed this invasion as Russia somehow being under attack by the U.S., NATO, and Western elites. Zelensky did, however, immediately after the speech, announce that Ukraine is submitting an expedited application to join NATO, just like Sweden and Finland did earlier this year. Mm -hmm. and, and part of what's crazy here is that this is one of the main reasons Putin cited initially as his reason for invading Ukraine was to stop NATO from expanding. In a video speech on his Telegram channel announcing this application for, for NATO membership, Zelensky denounced the theft of Ukrainian territory. He accused Russia of redrawing international borders with murder and blackmail. And Zelensky went on to say that Ukraine is willing to enter negotiations with Russia, but not with Putin. Putin, in his address, said he's ready to negotiate with Ukraine, but not about the four territories he just annexed, saying that those will be part of Russia forever. Well, can I ask, like, what is the real world impact of these so-called annexations yeah. by Russia? Like, what kind of difference will this make to people's lives there day to day? So, you know, I talked to this guy today who had just arrived in Mykolaiv yesterday after fleeing out of Kherson. And Kherson is one of the Russian occupied regions that was just officially annexed. And, mm -hmm. and this man said that this really matters, that for him, he saw this coming. He was in Crimea when Russia annexed Crimea, and he decided that he had to get out of Kherson. He walked for 20 days, he wow. said, crossing through 15 to 17 Russian checkpoints. He couldn't remember exactly how many. But he believed that if he stayed and Kherson became part of Russia, he would get drafted into the Russian army and be forced to fight against his fellow Ukrainians. And this was something he desperately wanted to, to try to avoid. Yeah. Um, the other key way that this annexation changes things is that now President Putin is likely to claim that any Ukrainian counteroffensive to try to reclaim these regions is an attack on Mother Russia. <laughs> Putin again today, he warned that that would be met with the full force of Russia's military, which we all know includes nuclear weapons. That is correct. That is NPR's Jason Bobian talking to us from the southern Ukrainian city of Mykolaiv. Thank you so much, Jason. You're welcome, Elsa. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. By calling this number, now if you can, 1-800-909-9287, or going online to WBUR.org. We have one hour and 20 minutes left in this fun drive. It's over at 7 o'clock tonight. We would love to have your phone call. Why? Because... As much as we've come a long way in this fun drive, and we really have, and we've we've uh, weathered some some frightening times when we weren't making as much as we were hoping we would make, we still have seventy three thousand dollars left mm. to raise before seven o'clock tonight. Please think, what part of that can you chip away at with your phone call right now? one 800 wbur.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Deborah Becker. We have one hour and 18 minutes left to raise that $73,000. So, so we need your help, quite frankly. That's what we're asking. We're saying, look, we know it's Friday afternoon. You want to put the week behind you, put the obligations away. We all do. But we're saying just take about a minute or two right now and make a pledge for the journalism that you count 
Valentine to keep you informed about the world. If you know that you're regularly listening to find out what's going on around the world, if you're regularly reading our website to check in on the latest developments locally, nationally, internationally, and you know you can count on us, well, we're counting on you right now to help us get closer to having a successful fundraiser, to help us raise the $73,000 we have left to raise in the next hour or so. The fundraiser ends at 7. We need your pledge so it can be a good, successful fundraiser so we can meet our budget. Here's the number again. It's 1-800-909-9287 and the website's WBUR.org. Listening to WBUR really gives me a precise understanding of what's going on in a very short amount of time. I get a little smarter every time I listen and I learn all types of different information. It's the sort of programming that helps me understand myself and helps me understand the world around me better. I want to be able to participate in conversations and really contribute to what's going on around me and in the world and and just to be conscious about what's happening in my life. It's just an opportunity to learn about so many different subjects, learn about different places in the world that I never would otherwise have been exposed to. For all the ways WBUR enriches your life, give monthly at WBUR.org. You know, I think we all can't put into words what a station like WBUR means to us, but those listeners did it really, really well. Uh, if, if any part of what they said resonated with you, the fact that we open you up to the world, uh, that we keep you informed with high-quality news and information, then please make your pledge to keep us uh, strong, to keep us going, to keep us bringing you the high-quality news and information that we do every day, every moment, in fact, of every day. one 800 909 is the number WBUR.org. This fun drive is over at 7 o'clock tonight. That leaves an hour and 15 minutes for us to raise. Deb Becker, how much is it now? We are at $73,000. $73,000. It's good, but that's a lot. That's a lot. It is a lot. And, and you know, uh, we're just asking you to do what you can. What can you afford? What part of that $73,000 can you help pay for so this fundraiser is successful? 1-800-909-9287. You know, so many of you have given us feedback during this fund drive. And, and it's so, so uh, heartening and just wonderful to read some of this feedback. And we're so glad that when those of you who contributed earlier today said, you know, when I heard that you still had money left to raise, I really stepped up and I really made another, sometimes another contribution to make sure that you would meet your fundraising goal. What can you do for our fundraising goal? You know, I want to I want to read some of these, Lisa, because they are just sure. so great. One person says, WBUR programming is a very important news source to me. Thank you for your high quality reporting. I, I listen to NPR stations all the time. I have since the late 70s. WBUR is reliable and offers news and information that citizens cannot reliably get anywhere else. Thank you. No, thank you for doing your part, for making your pledge, for sharing your feedback. If you haven't made a pledge yet, we've got an hour and 14 minutes left in our fall fundraiser. We've got $73,000 left to raise to have a successful fall fundraiser. So we are counting on you. We are really counting on you to do your part and make a pledge now. one 800 909 9287. If you can make a monthly pledge, in fact, of $12 a month, 
$25 a month, you would have even greater impacts. Just make a pledge in whatever you can afford. If it's a one-time pledge, we appreciate that as well. We just need to raise $73,000 by 7 o'clock tonight when our fundraiser is coming to an end. So this is the time for you to step up. Think about what WBOR means to you and put a dollar figure on that. We will be so grateful. Other listeners would be so grateful as well. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. The Food and Drug Administration has approved a controversial new drug for the fatal condition known as ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. NPR's John Hamilton reports that the decision is being hailed by patients and advocates, but questioned by some scientists. The FDA approved the drug, named Relivrio, based on a study of just 137 patients. But Kalanit Balas, president of the ALS Association, says the decision is very good news for people with the disease. Right now, there just aren't a lot of drugs available. And they offer only a modest benefit. As a result, people with ALS typically die within two to five years of a diagnosis. Balas says Relivrio may give them an extra five to six months or more. Six months can be someone attending their daughter's graduation, a wedding, the birth of a child. These are really big, monumental things that many people want to make sure that they're around to see and be a part of. But there's an ongoing debate about the drug's effectiveness. Experts who advise the FDA voted against approval in March. Then they reversed their position during a rare second meeting a few weeks ago. Dr. David Rind of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review says it's hard to interpret the results of a single small drug trial. I totally understand why people would be trying to figure out a way to get this to patients. There's just a general concern out there that maybe the trial is wrong. A much larger trial of the drug is underway. Rin says a negative result would be a major blow. If you've got a drug that's extending life by five months, you ought to be able to show that in a larger trial. In the meantime, Rin says, perhaps the company should charge less than the announced price of $158,000 a year. Relivrio is the only product made by Amelix Pharmaceuticals. The Massachusetts company was founded by Josh Cohen and Justin Klee, who attended Brown University together. Klee says the drug is priced to allow the company to develop even better treatments. This is not a cure. We need to keep investing until we cure ALS. Klee also promised that Amelix will reevaluate its drug based on the results of a larger trial called Phoenix. If the Phoenix trial is not successful, we will do what's right for patients, which includes taking the drug voluntarily off the market. Cohen and Klee, though, acknowledge that the decision isn't theirs alone. It would require support from the company's investors and its board of directors. John Hamilton, NPR News. Midway through last night's episode of The Daily Show, while talking about his seventh anniversary as host, Trevor Noah shocked his audience with this. I realized that after the seven years, um, my time is up. I, uh, yeah. But in, 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 the most, in the most beautiful way. In the most beautiful way. The 38-year-old comic says he is leaving the program, offering few details on what he might do next or why he's leaving. To talk more about this move and its implications for late night is NPR TV critic Eric Dagens. Hey, Eric. Hi. Okay, so it seemed like Noah's announcement really came as a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, do we know much about why he might be leaving after seven years? 
Um, not really. I mean, even before he joined The Daily Show, he had a successful career as a stand-up comic internationally. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's some sense he wants to get back to that. Uh, Comedy Central, which airs The Daily Show, put out a statement saying there's no timetable for his departure. And they expect to work with him on the next steps, which presumably includes kneeling down exactly when he's going to leave and, you know, who the new host will be. Um, I've heard that the cable channel had been working with him for a while on how to manage the grind of hosting four original episodes every week. But he's got a lot of things going on outside of the program, including the stand-up comedy tours, hosting big events like the Grammy Awards and the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner. Right. Well, given his success outside the show, I'm curious, is it possible that his talent and all these career options just sort of expanded beyond what The Daily Show could offer? I mean, it's possible. I, I was in the audience at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in April, uh -huh. and I remember being really impressed by how he told these smartly incisive jokes that weren't so tough that they seemed mean or crossed a line. Like uh, this one about Biden's, uh, about President Joe Biden's tendency to speak without a filter. Let's listen. Caused a huge international incidents saying that Vladimir Putin should be removed from power. Very upsetting to Russia. Yeah, until someone explained to them that none of the stuff Biden wants actually gets done. <laughs> so his performance at the dinner was widely praised. And so when he announced his departure from The Daily Show on Thursday, Trevor Noah talked about wanting to perform more in other countries, take time to learn other languages. It just sounds like he needs a break to explore other opportunities and get away from the constant demands of hosting a nightly TV show. Yeah. Well, how would you say Trevor Noah has changed The Daily Show? And how do you think his departure will affect late night TV in general? Well, I mean, right now, he's the most prominent host of color in late night TV. But when Trevor Noah took over The Daily Show in 2015, he was a comedian and TV personality from South Africa who wasn't particularly well known in the U.S. He was taking over from Jon Stewart, who had turned The Daily Show into this institution. But Trevor Noah astonished everybody by overcoming that, making The Daily Show his own, injecting his perspective as the son of a black mother and a white father born mm -hmm. in apartheid era South Africa. He reworked the show's theme song. He made it more youth-oriented and internationalist. Um, you know, there's a lot of departures coming in late night. And losing his voice, I think, is going to be yeah. a big loss. And it that means something is NPR's that late night TV Eric can Dagens. accommodate his talent. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business powering possibilities and boston ballet's my obsession with stephen galloway's devil's eye set to music by the rolling stones october 6th to 16th tickets at bostonballet.org this is amory sievertson co-host of the wbur podcast endless thread for thousands of people across greater boston and beyond wbur is a lifeline a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR. 
for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. You are absolutely our lifeline right now. Here's what we have left to raise in the fund drive. It's over in just over an hour, about an hour and five minutes. We have left to raise $70,000. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but we know we can do it with your phone call right now to sustain us, to support us. Make an investment in this radio station by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. Let's look at it as a challenge. Can we raise this $70,000 in the next hour and five minutes? We can with your help. Will you help us reach our fundraising goal? Will you help us end our fall fundraiser successfully at 7 o'clock tonight? I hope so, because the way you can do that is you can make a pledge right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by going online at wbur.org. You know, we've been reading listener feedback, uh, especially because when we were uh, announcing that we were behind in the fundraiser and we still had a ways to go, so many folks donated and they said why they did. And I'd like to share some of that right now, Lisa, because these are just great. Maybe it's just (laughs) making myself feel better, but they're great. Uh, One listener said, we give monthly, but we know you need more right now. I just came back from a morning cold water swim and before I'm getting into the shower I'm donating. My hands are shaking from being cold but I feel good about supporting WBUR. I rely on you. Thank you. Thank, for, thank you for going above and beyond for recognizing that we, we have been behind in this fundraiser and we've got a long way to go. We've got $70,000 left to raise in the next hour to have a successful fundraiser. So if you have done your part and recognize that, thank you. If you haven't had a chance to do it yet, we know it's Friday afternoon. We know you've got a lot going on. You know you want it just to be the weekend. But please make a pledge right now. 1-800-909-9287. And here's another uh, note from a listener. And by the way, one of the reasons that we are so excited about these these notes that have come in in the past 24 hours from listeners is that usually when we hear um, uh, feedback, it's often a complaint. <laughs> but we know there's a lot of good stuff out there as well. This one says, uh, NPR is just good radio for any objective person and seeking the facts of the day. Someone else says, I'm a civics teacher and I use WBR reporting in my lessons when we discuss current events. The journalism helps my students make sense of the world around them. You can't put a price on that. So I figured it was time to give back. Keep up the great work. So Mm. many more. And and we know that you have a story you could tell on your own as well about WBR and why you listen to us. The fact is that you do listen. So we hope you realize that this is a partnership unlike any other. We're not going to send you a bill. We're not going to send you a membership uh, 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 increase. Uh, We don't have a paywall. We trust that you will come through based on our economic model that you have signed on to because you listen. So please give us whatever you can reasonably afford. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. We are now at $70,000 left to raise, just over an hour in which to raise it. Oh, can I read another one? I really need to read another sure. one here. Another another comment from <laughs> listeners. Uh, in this era of disinformation, the war on truth corrodes not just our democracy, but our shared sense of hope and possibility. Never has quality journalism mattered so much as an emblem of truth. You occupy 
occupy the front lines in the fight for the nation's soul. Thank you. They're so smart. Oh, my gosh. They really? are so smart. Thank you thank so you. much. Oh, oh, thank you for your comments. Thank you for your contributions. How about you? Have you made your pledge yet? Because if you haven't, this is it. Final hour of the fall fundraiser. And we are asking you to just do what you can to make a pledge right now to help us raise this $70,000 in the next hour so this fall fundraiser will be successful. one 800 9289 This is Ira Glass of This American Life from Public Radio International. One of the things that makes public radio different is the way that it's funded. We have the most idealistic system, the fairest system, the best system in the world. That is, those of us who listen all the time, those of us who like the kinds of stories and shows and analysis and music and authors that are on this radio station every day, those of us who like that kind of thing, we all pitch in together, and that's how it stays on the air. Public radio equals public support. If you can help out, give a call. Please do give a call at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We have a new tally now, $69,000 and 60 minutes in which to raise it. Our fundraiser is over at 7 o'clock. It would be so shameful for us if we have to end it and we are ending it short but we hope that's not going to happen so help us be successful keep your radio station the radio station you've chosen to listen to keep it strong because you get back whatever you give to wbur make an investment in wbur 1-800-909-9287 or wbur.org once again $69,000 we've come a long way in this fund drive since we started last week you can help us end it successfully right now. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Not content to just batter Florida, Hurricane Ian made landfall for a second time in the continental U.S. today with strong 85-mile-per-hour winds before being downgraded to a post-tropical cyclone. The storm came ashore today near Georgetown, South Carolina. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen says Ian continues to cause problems from Charleston to Myrtle Beach. Georgetown is a riverfront community about an hour north of Charleston. It too sees flooding even without a hurricane. And nearby is a resort community called Polly's Island. It saw surf so strong that a pier collapsed today. 
north of that in Myrtle Beach. The swells were so large, waves reportedly washed over the boardwalk and even up to the hotel doors. Victoria Hansen reporting about 185,000 people in the state have lost electricity. Meanwhile, in southeast Florida, a very different situation. We just passed Fort Myers Beach and... It largely looks like a bomb went off. Eileen Kelly from member station WGCU flew over some of the hardest hit areas in a helicopter. Search and rescue efforts are underway on the ground. Susan Giles Wontuck of member station WUSF in Tampa reports authorities say thousands of people are still unaccounted for following the devastation from Hurricane Ian. Florida Emergency Management Director Kevin Guthrie says the number of people they're searching for will rapidly decrease. If you guys recall back when I was here for Hurricane Michael, we had over 30,000 people. And then we whittled that down to 3,000. And then we whittled it down to 300. And that just happened organically over time. Guthrie says search efforts have been helped by people checking in online with the state and through FEMA. But in the hardest hit areas, there may not be cell phone capability, which makes the search more difficult. For NPR News, I'm Susan Giles, Wintech in Tampa. President Biden insists the U.S. and its allies are not going to be intimidated by Russian President Vladimir Putin. Bears Asma Holodez more on Biden's response to Russian President Putin's move to formally annex four Ukrainian territories. President Biden referred to Putin's remarks as reckless threats and described Russia's annexation ceremony as a, quote, sham routine. The United States is never going to recognize this. And quite frankly, the world's not going to recognize it either. He can't seize his neighbor's territory and get away with it. As simple as that. Biden said Putin's actions are a sign he's struggling. He said the U.S. will continue to help Ukraine defend itself, and that includes more than $12 billion in additional aid that Congress approved this week. Biden reiterated that the U.S. is prepared with NATO allies to defend every single inch of NATO territory. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. A down end to a down quarter on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 500 points today. The Nasdaq dropped 161 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Lynn commuter rail station on the new report Rockport line will close starting tomorrow until further notice. The MBTA is rebuilding the station as part of a $72 million renovation project. T officials say riders can use the free shuttle bus service or MBTA bus routes as alternatives during the closure. Improvements to the Port of Boston have been completed and will open the city to 18 new global shipping ports later this fall. It was roughly a decade in the making and involved dredging Boston Harbor to allow for larger ships, building new berths, and installing three new cranes at Connolly Terminal. The terminal in South Boston is New England's only full-service container port. And the city of Boston is closing streets and enforcing parking restrictions ahead of two events this weekend. The annual Jimmy Fund Walk will affect areas along the Boston Marathon route from Hopkinton to Copley Square. That's on Sunday. And the Rosendale Day Parade is also Sunday, affecting areas around Belgrade Avenue and South Street. In the forecast, look for lots of clouds around tonight, about 51 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, overcast and damp, especially in the afternoon. Some showers kicking up, about 60 degrees for a high. Then for Sunday, should wake up to some rain in the morning, gusty breezes through the day, lots of clouds again. Highs around 57. It is 57 degrees now in Boston at 606. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. 
Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. We're going back to All Things Considered with the latest on Hurricane Ian's destruction in Fort Myers and looking where it's landing now in South Carolina. Those stories and more coming up in just a couple of minutes. First, an update on our fund drive. We are now down to $65,000 to raise. Thank you so much to those people who are calling in right now. If you haven't, please do it right now because we have 55 minutes left in the fundraiser. It ends at 7 o'clock tonight, and we still need to raise $65,000. 909-9287 or WBUR.org. Yeah, that's about $1,000 a minute, actually more, but I'm trying not to do the math. Uh, call <laughs> now. Help us out. We know that you can do this. We know so many of you, really so many listeners have, have said, you know what, if WBUR is down a little bit, is not going to, may not make, I'm not going to say we're not going to, may not make that fundraising goal. Well, I'm going to do my part. Well, do your part right now. Do what you can band together toward the common goal, as Robin Young just said, a common goal of independent, high-quality journalism that you can trust. That's the goal. That's what we all want. That's what we want to bring to you. We know that that's what you want to hear. That's what we're asking you to pledge for in this fall fundraiser. The fundraiser ends at 7 p.m. We're $65,000 away. Is that right? It just became $63,000. Thank you. Thank you so much to those who've called. Right. And if you have not, we have these listener comments we've been reading from uh, comments made during the day today. I've been a listener for many years and have not done my part to support WBUR, but relied on the generosity of others. Now it's my turn to support the news and journalism I appreciate. Thanks, WBUR. Well, thank you for that comment. Thank you for that pledge as well. If that sounds familiar to you, they've been listening for years and really relied on other people to do the job Please now change that equation. Please be part of this community, part of what upholds WBUR, because you listen to us and you support us that way. Please support us financially, because that is our model. We are beholden to you, not to commercial interests. So please do your part right now in whatever you can afford. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know, it's expensive, right? Journalism is expensive. It's an expensive endeavor to do it well. And we know that. You know that. You probably realize that because so many journalist, journalism organizations have faltered. It's a big expense. But we know that you support this radio station because you want to keep us strong. You respect and, and understand the kind of journalism that we provide and the way it's funded. $62,000 left to raise Thank you. in the this hour so we can keep that journalism coming, so we can keep that journalism strong. Whether it's stories about Hurricane Ian, whether it's stories about Massachusetts politics, we've got you covered. We're relying on you to do your part during this fundraiser today. 1-800-909-9287. There's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. The programming, you know, local personalities, everything's very grounded here in Boston, it seems. I think we're incredibly lucky to be in a city that has such a rich public radio program. And I think WBR specifically does a great job of connecting people not just to national news and international news, but local. It makes me want to support WBUR. Support your home for public radio. Give monthly at WBUR.org. 
It can be $10 monthly gift, $15 monthly gift, $25 if you can swing that. We're asking you to become a sustainer. We're asking simply for your pledge right now as we have $62,000 left to raise. We need to raise it by 7 o'clock tonight. Uh, to end this fund drive successfully, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. A lot of Boston flowing through WBUR, as they said. A lot of Boston news, a lot of national news, a lot of international news. All here for you every day, 24-7. What's that worth to you? Well, it costs a lot of money, and we're trying to raise the money to do it in the next 50 minutes. We've got about $62,000 left to raise in 50 minutes. Help us get there. Help us reach that fundraising goal, because we can't do it without you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. On Florida's Gulf Coast, people are trying to pick up the lives that they put on hold when Hurricane Ian struck earlier this week. A few businesses have reopened, and that means long lines at gas stations, supermarkets, and the occasional food truck. In the hardest-hit areas, meaning Fort Myers and surrounding communities, there's still no power or water and wide uncertainty about when it may be back. NPR's Greg Allen has been out talking to people there and joins us now. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so there's no power or water, but some businesses are reopening. How are they doing that? Well, with generators mostly, you know, there's been an emphasis in Florida on having gas stations and supermarkets have emergency generators. But all those generators require gas. Chad Barney and his brother Brandon waited in line in Northport in Charlotte County for almost two hours today to get gas. Chad says their house flooded in the storm surge. So we had two canals going all around us so we could watch the water coming in. Uh, as soon as it went over the neighbor's yard, we knew it was coming to the street next. And uh, as soon as they all met, uh, obviously we just watched the water keep on rising. We watched it come up into our pool, up in our lanai, up in our garage. We have about two feet of standing water in our garage about a foot and a half all around our house inside. Well, how much have the floodwaters subsided in the areas where you are? Well, in a lot of areas we visited, the storm surge quickly went down. But Brandon Varney, uh, Chad's brother, says the water has gone down at his house, but in other areas, it's still rising. Back in Northport, it's going to be rising probably for the next week or so. This is what they're saying. Power, they're saying for three months could be out out there. Many roads are still flooded and closed in Northport, and some residents are using boats or kayaks to get in and out of their homes. And Greg, I understand that you've also been to Cape Coral, which which also took a huge hit during this storm. How are people doing there? Well, you know, this is an area that was pummeled by 140 mile per hour winds for hours, and also it got that powerful storm surge. We talked to Karen Colley, who has a home and a business here. She says both were flooded when the surge came in on Monday. We came to our office to get whatever we could salvage because the roof's just, everything's just gonna come down. Our house is okay other than the water it came in and it smells like sewage, raw sewage. Driving through Cape Coral today, we saw a lot of damage to roofs, carports, awnings. We saw aluminum siding wrapped around palm trees. There are a lot of trees down, but in the section we saw, concrete construction houses held up remarkably well despite those high winds and the flooding. Well, we were mentioning how some businesses are reopening. Can, can you say more about that, how some people are beginning this long recovery process? Right. Near Cape Coral's downtown, Matt Harrison had three smokers going today and was selling barbecue from his food truck. Today, we just ran out of pulled pork. I got more cooking right now, so we'll have more again tonight. We've got brisket and ribs right now. He stocked up on ribs and brisket before the storm. The one thing he didn't have today, though, was bread. 
His home and businesses were flooded, and he thinks recovery is going to be a long process. It took us 19 days with Irma. This is a hundred times worse. It's, it's, I can't even say months. Wouldn't surprise me. Well, we also began to get word today of fatalities during this storm. What do we know so far on that front? Well, Florida officials said they need to wait for medical examiners to rule before they can confirm which deaths are really storm-related. So right now, although there's just one confirmed storm-related death, we know of at least 20 others that are awaiting confirmation, and that number is only likely to grow. Right. That is NPR's Greg Allen in Fort Myers, Florida. Thank you so much, Greg. You're welcome. After Hurricane Ian ravaged Florida, its remnants spiraled out into the Atlantic Ocean and then regained hurricane strength. Earlier this afternoon, Ian made landfall in South Carolina. It may have landed as a less powerful Category 1 storm, but National Hurricane Center officials still warned of life-threatening storm surge along the coast, as well as severe flooding throughout the Carolinas and, of course, strong winds. Amanda Bryan lives in the coastal city of Myrtle Beach. That's a little over 30 miles north of where the center of the storm passed. Amanda, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for talking to us today. Yes, thank you. Amanda, what did you see and hear as the worst came through this afternoon? We're actually in the middle of getting the backside of the storm now. So mm. our our power is kind of flickering on and off as we speak, and the winds have definitely picked up. Um, we rode down to the beach earlier where we frequent on the golf cart, and the dunes are completely covered. The dunes are completely covered, you said, and you, I know you said your power is flickering. How's everything else holding up? Your building, your other utilities? Everything seems to be going just fine. Um, we did have a tree come down in the backyard, and um, unfortunately, our neighbor's chicken coop, we had to rescue her chickens. But um, other than that, just a lot of a lot of flying debris, um, just blocks from us. The roads are impassable because of the storm surge. Um, it's come over the roads now, so they're closing the streets. Yeah, I I have to imagine that you and other people there saw some of what happened in Florida. How are you preparing for this storm? Um, I've actually been a resident here for all of my life. So I've been through some minor and some major hurricanes. I'm just making sure that we have enough water in case we do lose power, of course, you know, for the grill, because that's always a good option. We do have a generator and just making sure that we're kind of clear in the path for, you know, the limbs that are falling, if we can get outside to get them to get them down. So they're not hanging on the power line or creating other, you know, dangerous situations. Your line's dipping it out in a little bit, and we'll just remind people that you said you're getting the back half of that storm right now. Amanda, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you've lived in South Carolina your whole life. How does this compare to other storms that you've been through? Um, well, I was a child when Hugo came through, but I remember being out of power for at least two weeks, so that was just a crazy situation. Um mm. But uh, Matthew, I actually lived in Conway during Matthew, and the flooding there was just, it was just, it was really bad. Um, We didn't, you know, we still haven't recovered fully from that. But um, here at the beach, this is um, in the matter of wind. It's, it's been pretty severe, a lot more than I expected. It's hard to hear you say that even as you're weathering the back half of this storm now of Hurricane Ian, your community still hasn't recovered from a storm that happened before. I'd like to ask you before we let you go, how are you feeling right now? Um, I am feeling pretty good right now. Like I said, we're on the back end of it. So I think a lot of the the dangerous winds have already come through. But um, it's definitely, you know, an anxious feeling to to be at the hands of Mother Nature and not know what's going to happen. 
Yeah, I have to imagine that is a lot of anxiety. I hope you and your family are weathering it well and that you stay safe. We have been talking to Amanda Bryan, who we reached in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Amanda, thank you and stay safe. Thank you so much. This is 90.9 WBUR. In business news, so much for September on Wall Street. The Dow lost 500 points today, about one and three quarter percent to close at 28,726. It lost more than 8 percent in the month of September. S&P and NASDAQ both dropped about one and a half percent today. The S&P closed at 3586. The NASDAQ ended the week at 10,576. Marketplace has details. It starts in just about 10 minutes at 630. In the forecast, lots of clouds overnight tonight, about 51 degrees. Tomorrow, overcast once again, could have some showers in the afternoon, only about 60 for a high. Sunday is looking kind of grim as well. Look for some morning rain, strong breezes through the day, lots of clouds, highs around 57. 57 degrees now in Boston at 619. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Thank you so much to everyone who is calling, who has, have now brought us down to $57,000 we need to Ooh. raise. We have about 40 minutes in which to do it because the fun drive is over at 7 o'clock. Deb Becker, at one point I was thinking, maybe it's not going to come down to the wire. Maybe it's not going to be one of those fun drives. I think it is. <laughs> but we don't want to lose uh, our, our miss our goal for lack of a couple of phone calls. So please make your call right now. Help us make our goal by 7 o'clock tonight. We are $57,000 away from that. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. $57,000 left to raise. 40 minutes left to raise it. We can do this with your help. Please make your pledge in the next 40 minutes so we can end this fall fund drive successfully by 7 p.m. And what that means to end a fundraiser successfully is it's the amount of money that we've set to raise so we can meet our budget, so we can stay strong, so we can still be that independent, source of high-quality journalism for you. You know, so many of you have given us feedback during this fundraiser uh, when you've made your pledges. Thank you so much. And, and we've been reading them um, because they're just terrific. Here's one. Uh, Lisa, you've got to hear this one. I listen every day when I'm in my car and I'm out running my sales route. And when I heard that you weren't close to your goal, I felt like I needed to step up. At first, I was going to pledge $10 a month, but I upped it to 15 I figure I can spend that on platform. 
platform subscription or a nice glass of wine at dinner so I can surely spend it in support of something I access daily. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can you spend $15 a month for your public radio listening? What can you spend? Do it now so this fund drive ends successfully in 39 minutes. We've got $57,000 Now down to 56,000. Wow, this is a nail biter. Help us out here. (laughs) How close are we going to get to that goal? Can we make that goal? We can. We're counting on you. Help us do it now. I hope we can. Here's the number to call, 1-800-909-9287 and the website's WBUR.org. Here's another listener comment uh, from earlier today. I was inspired by my experience serving on a jury, first time to be selected on a jury panel, and came away with a newfound respect for the judicial system, which kind of surprised me. I realized that listening to broadcasts on NPR gives me a similar feeling. I frequently come away from listening with new information and new insights and ideas that broaden my worldview. I'm inspired and uplifted. Seems like the perfect time to finally support something I enjoy, the Mm. privilege of, and often take for granted. So that kind of, I bet many of you can identify with that, maybe not the sitting on a jury part, but certainly <clears throat> thinking of the inspiration that you get by listening to WBUR, feeling as though you're a part of something that helps you um, broaden your own worldview and challenge your assumptions and give you new insights. If that is you, or even if it isn't, make a pledge right now to WBUR because we have just now about 40 minutes left to go in the fund drive. It is over at 7 o'clock. We have $56,000 left to raise. one 800 wbur.org. How about this comment? As a 77-year-old always training for the next half marathon. Ooh, uh, making me feel guilty. <laughs> I spend hours on the roads every day, earbuds in, and always tuned to WBUR. Well, thank you so much for keeping us uh, in mind. Thank you for your contribution. But please make your pledge right now. Help us reach this fundraising goal. We've got 37 minutes left until the fall fundraiser ends. So, you know, if you've been listening and you've been meaning to pledge and you've been saying, I'll get around to it, we understand it's Friday afternoon. But just do it right now. It takes about a minute, and you will know that you've done your part to help us have a successful fall fundraiser. 1-800-909-9287. Listening to WBUR really gives me a precise understanding of what's going on in a very short amount of time. I get a little smarter every time I listen, and I learn all types of different information. It's the sort of programming that helps me understand myself and helps me understand the world around me better. I want to be able to participate in conversations and really contribute to what's going on around me and in the world and and just to be conscious about what's happening in my life. It's just an opportunity to learn about so many different subjects, learn about different places in the world that I never would otherwise have been exposed to. For all the ways WBUR enriches your life, give monthly at WBUR.org. So think about what, what some of those listeners said and think about why you listen to WBUR and how you feel afterwards. I mean, what, what is it that you appreciate about WBUR that makes it worth your time listening to? Because there are a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, polls in different directions for your ears and eyes and money, for instance. So when you listen to WBUR, know that we don't send you a bill. We don't have a paywall, but we can't do what we do without you. So please make the phone call right now. We're down to 55000 mm. Just heard 55000 left to raise by 7 Seven o'clock tonight. This is going to be close, but you can help it be less close with your call. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thanks so much.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Brazilians go to the polls Sunday to decide rather to get, whether to give their right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, another four-year term. Bolsonaro has spent the past four years encouraging logging, mining, and ranching in the Amazon rainforest. And this has led to record deforestation. More than 13,000 square miles of jungle have been lost, and that is an area larger than the state of Maryland. NPR's John Otis has been traveling through the Amazon and filed this report. So we're seeing a big black plume of smoke rising into the sky, so we're going to stop and check it out. After driving just a few hours into the jungle, we spot our first fire. Farmers and ranchers are torching the land to clear it of trees and underbrush. It looks like a couple of acres have burned up already, and there's nobody watching over this, so this thing could spread. Suddenly, the fire gets a lot louder as flames shoot to the top of palm trees. Back in our truck, translator Monica Prestes and I have a hard time keeping track of all the fires. So this looks like two fires? Ah, oh, there's one on the other side of the road, too. The color of the sky changed. It's gray now. We can no longer see the blue sky. Until recently, Brazilian governments tried to clamp down on rainforest destruction. But since taking office in 2019, President Bolsonaro has incited it by promoting cattle ranching, gold mining, and agro-industry in the Amazon. Eduardo Taveira, the top environmental official for Amazonas State, which includes most of the jungle, says the goal is to create badly needed jobs. More than 15% of all the population are living below of the line of the poverty. So it's not just about environmental issues that you're talking about. But there's been a free-for-all of deforestation. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro has gutted the environmental agencies tasked with preventing it, says Philip Fernside of Brazil's National Institute of Amazonian Research. It sends a message to people who are at the front lines deforesting and so forth that they can violate any environmental laws they want and then later on all will be forgiven. Indeed, during our four days driving through the jungle, we're unable to find a single police officer or park ranger taking action to stop the destruction. We do come across numerous road maintenance crews, but their work makes it easier for newcomers to move into the jungle. Many, like Duval Costa, equate scorched earth with progress. He's just finished burning five acres of jungle to make way for a herd of cattle. He freely admits that what he's doing is illegal. In fact, Costa has been ticketed three times for chopping down the jungle. But he shrugs and says nobody around here ever bothers to pay environmental fines. However, the situation could change soon. Ahead of Sunday's election, polls show Bolsonaro trailing Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. He's a former two-term president who has pledged to preserve the Amazon. In the meantime, settlers here are rushing to raise the jungle while they still can. One farmer has only been here a month, but has already cleared 30 acres. 
shirtless and lying in a hammock. He claims to be opening up space to plant pineapples and coconuts. But there's a for sale sign out front, and it's common practice for speculators here to pay people to live on their land and burn the jungle, which actually raises property values. As our trip winds down, we finally spot some people trying to stop the destruction, a team of firefighters. Fire Chief Joao Filio admits that it's frustrating to see so many jungle arsonists get off scot-free. But he doesn't dwell on it. He's too busy saving whatever patches of rainforest he can. John Otis, NPR News, the Amazon Rainforest, Brazil. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. And Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.